Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, I'm joined by Tony Peterson to explore if, why, and how a deep dive into whitetail science can help you become a better deer hunter. And we're kicking off a brand new month-long series on this very topic. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today, we're kicking off a brand new month-long series about the science of whitetails. And spearheading that series is the one and only Tony Peterson, who's here with me today. Tony, glad to have you back here. Uh, how are you feeling? I hear you've been going through a rough spell. Man, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I I had avoided COVID really, really well until last week, and it was a uh, it was an experience, buddy. <laughs> Do you feel like you're back to normal now, or are you a shell of the former self still? Uh, I don't know if that's how I describe myself. I wouldn't, I also wouldn't say normal. It's, it's weird, man. You, you know how it, it hits people differently. And I really had a couple of days where I felt pretty bad, uh, just kind of achy and, you know, just not myself, but those, those went pretty quickly and I started to feel better, but man, doing some stuff like trying to write or edit it, editing is brutal. Like having to think about words, it gives, I get like you know, 45 minutes. I'm like, I'm toast. My brain is just mush. And then working out, I, I got a little cocky and thought, you know, since I feel pretty good, I could go, you know, go to the gym and pick up some heavy stuff. And it did not take me very long to figure out that, that my stamina was just not there. Mm, yikes. I, I do not have nearly as good of an excuse as you, but I will say over the last week, I have felt like I can't focus on anything. My brain's a fog. I'm fatigued. I'm, uh, I'm a shell of my former self. Uh, and, and the reason for that, Tony, is that for the first time as a parent of two children, I had to do dad duty on my own for three and a half days. (laughs) (laughs) And it it left you, uh, it it left you in rough shape, huh, buddy? I'm a husk. I'm just a husk. (laughs) 
a dried husk of a man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can totally uh, sympathize with my wife so much more now when I'm gone for two weeks at a time hunting and she uh, keeps the ship afloat. I, I just had to do it for three and a half days and I, uh, I, it's no, it's no small task, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough, man. And I, I know there's probably not a woman that listens to this podcast, so it doesn't matter anyway, but they are amazing at keeping the whole thing together. And we are just like placeholder idiots that come and go sometimes, I think. Oh, for sure. And and the women are, that are listening do think that we're idiots for complaining about this. <laughs> it's, <laughs> they're definitely not impressed with us. But uh, but yeah, man, it was uh, it was an adventure. My My go-to kind of move for getting through it like I, I had to just kind of get through the regular work day as normal I had to work as best as I could and try to keep the kids entertained but my patience would just be so thin by the end of the day I couldn't handle like you know playing you know whatever like the, the kids stuff they want to do so I would just pack the boys up in the truck and we would drive off to some random spot in the national forest and we would just like dump them out and we just would let them explore climb rocks climb hills playing creeks, playing the lakes. It was just like three days of nature babysitting, which was very, very good for those, those evening hours when I needed a little mental break. Um, so that was, uh, that was my epiphany, I guess, was that I like Mother Nature now even more so because I realized that she's a great babysitter, and uh, that was needed. Yeah, man. It's, it's good. If, you're, if you got to do something like that, this is the time of year to do it. If you're, if you're like, man, I really need to mother nature's help a little bit. You don't really want that to happen in like January. Yeah, for sure. We got, we got relatively lucky with decent weather and yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. I mean, the boys are pretty good and mom's back now. I, I made the mistake. This is, this is a digression, but I made the mistake of planning to pick my wife up at three o'clock in the afternoon when she got back, had to pick her up at the airport and then immediately take her to a campground where I'd set up a tent and stuff. And I was like, let's just start camping right away. So you'll come back from your work trip. I later found out she had to wake up at 2 a.m. that day to catch her flight. And so she had woken up at 2 a.m. and been on airplanes all day. And then I picked her up and was like, let's go camping. And uh, <laughs> she was not necessarily loving that as far as uh, diving right back into things. But we, we made the best of it. It was still fun. But it took a moment. <laughs> D- did she go camping? Yeah, we went camping, um, but she was very, very tired, and she was also not impressed with my lack of packing. I, I did like a halfway pack, so in the morning, I packed like the camping stuff and then drove the kids to the campground and got a site because I was, I was worried about not being able to get a site on a Saturday morning, right? That's pretty tough to do. So I raced to go get a site. We set up the tent and chairs and sleeping bags and stuff like that, and then I thought, after we pick up mom, we'll just stop by the house and grab like food and clothes. It'll be really quick. That'll be it. But it ended up being like an hour worth of all the million different things that dad did not think of that we needed to pack. And so that was mm-hmm. the first mistake was was Kylie realizing just how illy prepared I had us. <laughs> but uh, we made it through. Had a good time. The kids, uh, did, kids had fun. Did you feel I? So you know how it is like the first hunt of the year you have that that feeling like you're forgetting everything and then you get into a yes. groove and you're pretty good for most of the season and then you get kind of that rut burnout where you just start forgetting stuff again did it, did it bring back echoes of either of those times yeah this is definitely like the first time of the year kind of situation didn't have my stuff organized yeah. 
you know, this is our second camping trip of the year, but our first one out west. So it was just different and stuff wasn't in the right places yet. And we're still like, you know, just we're not fully settled. Um, Plus, usually it's like a team effort, right? Like there's a name for this thing. I don't know what it's called. It's like something about the I wish I knew what this was. But there's this idea that when you're in a couple, like when you when you're married, you end up having certain parts of your brain or certain parts of your day that you just completely offshore to your significant other. Like you don't even think about certain things. You don't even do certain things at all. It just becomes a part of like you knowing that your significant other will always cover this thing or will always take care of this task or will always be thinking about this part of the problem or whatever it is. And so what I realize is that that's kind of how me and my wife operate when packing for trips or camping trips or something like that. So there's so much that I'm so used to like doing this as a, as a team effort. Like I know my things, she does her things, but in this case, I was trying to do it all and I was failing miserably. So that's the big thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's really good to have to face your flaws, Mark, man, then you can become a better person. <laughs> that's, that's one of those things I've been having to do for a lot lately, but it's, uh, yeah. I have listeners all the time who are like, Hey, can you help Mark face some of his flaws? <laughs> That's what you're here for, buddy. And, uh, and I guess on on that note, you are taking us on this journey for the next month, taking over the podcast, running us on this series about the science of whitetail. So maybe we should talk about that, Tony. What's uh, what brought you to this? Like, why is this a topic that you wanted to explore in a deep in a deep way? Uh, there's a couple reasons. You know, you know, surface level, I guess you could just say, I'm just curious about the research and the science. Like you, you, you've interviewed a whole bunch of people in your life, obviously. And it's so fun to interview somebody whose life is dedicated to science, especially when that science is dedicated to the animals we love. It's just, it's just interesting. And so I, I was, I was stoked to do something like that anyway, just to not be talking about, you know, how to kill a bucks this way or how to kill a buck that way. And then the other part of it is, you know, we beat this drum a lot about just, just not understanding deer. Like we, we, we kind of take it for granted when we talk in this space that it's like, okay, we know what deer do. They bed here, they feed here, whatever. We kind of got to figure out the, the nuance of their daily travel, then it's done. But we don't really understand these animals very well. Like what, what makes them tick? Like what, what did they evolve from? And like, how does their eyesight really work? And all these things that we just sort of, you know, either, either don't even really acknowledge because we don't feel like we have to, or we, we don't, we kind of, we kind of just like dismissive of it. Like, well, that's just how deer see. Like I know how deer see. And then you talk to somebody who's like a real expert on that and it's eye opening. It's, it's so interesting. And so there were a couple different reasons I wanted to do this and it was pretty fun, man. Okay. What about... I'm sure there's some people listening now or who looked at the title of this and thought, eh, you know, I just want to know where to find bucks on scrapes or I, you know, I'm just going to pour a pile of corn out there and shoot a deer. Why do I need to get a PhD in the science of whitetails or something like that? Like pitch me or pitch that person who's a little antagonistic to this idea on why this is actually going to help them. Or is it, is this just going to be like scratch a curiosity itch and like, Hey, this is fascinating stuff, Tony, or are you actually going to help us learn stuff? That's not just fascinating, but also practically helpful. It's both. I mean, 
and it, here's the, this is the weird part, right? Like you, you could know nothing about deer essentially and still kill them. Like if you have the right setup, you could know very little about what makes deer tick and you could still kill them. But if you want to be a better hunter, you got to understand what motivates them. Like you got to understand what they're made of. And, you know, I always think about it like, you know, I, I equate a lot of stuff to dog training, right? And the more you learn about how a dog's nose and how our nose works or how a dog sees or why a dog makes eye contact with you or, you know, makes this kind of body language versus that kind or something like that, you know, you don't really need to know that stuff to train a dog. Like you could, you could teach a dog to heal and sit and double blind retrieve and all that stuff without really knowing that, but you wouldn't be as good of a dog trainer. And I feel the same way about whitetails. Like if you, if you want to be a better hunter and I'm, I'm guessing that most of the people who listen to this podcast do like understanding why whitetails do what they do is so important. Yeah. You know, it's another, another, um, another part of this. I feel like at least for me, I do feel like when you start to understand these things, these deeper aspects of whitetail biology, or, you know, for me more recently, it's been like trying to understand habitat and like understand like what the different plants are out there, what trees are trying to identify tree species and plant species. And, you know, this is something I talked about during my habitat series earlier this year, how once you start to learn about the environment around you, it, it's like you are wearing a totally different, set of glasses when you enter the woods it's like when you're fishing tony this is an analogy i've been using recently you throw on like polarized sunglasses when you're fishing and all of a sudden you see this whole other world under the surface of the water that was there all along but you couldn't see it well i feel like a similar thing is happening in this case too like when you start learning about the science and biology of the animals you're pursuing in this case whitetails i think you enter the woods seeing and understanding a totally different picture than what was there previous to that, right? I, I really yep. do think you create a richer experience that helps you hunt, but then also just makes the whole thing a lot more interesting to do. Um, yep. Well, and it, I, I think, you know, along those lines, Mark, like one of the most important things we can ask ourselves as hunters is why. Like why, why do they do this? Or why did that buck do that? And, you know, through our anecdotal observation, we can only get so far with that, right? Like I can, I can only get so far if I walk, yeah. if I watch a buck, you know, walk through the woods and he, he makes a rub there and he you know, nibbles on some brows here. Like I can, I can figure some stuff out just by seeing that and paying attention to it. But there are people out there who have studied that stuff, like really studied why deer do those things. And, you know, they're a wealth of knowledge that you're just like, even, even in a lifetime of observation and dipping into the world of the whitetail, you're not going to learn some of the stuff that, that these people learn through like careful research. Yeah. And so that's, I, I just think that's cool. Yeah. Do you feel like if you were to look back over the course of your life, your hunting life, I know that this kind of stuff has always tickled your fancy. Like you're a, you're a student of whitetail science. You're interested in this stuff. Can you think of any example in your hunting experiences over the years where some kind of understanding of the science actually helped you on a hunt like you were sitting there thinking what should i do what should i do and then all of a sudden you're like oh well you know what this and this means that really they're going to be doing this kind of thing at this time of year and that like influenced the decision maybe early on when you were just figuring this stuff out maybe it was more that kind of internal conversation but does anything come to mind or does that 
ring a bell of any kind of idea where this stuff actually came into play in a way that you could say, oh, yeah, this was because I'd read this study or paid attention to this class or anything like that? Um, I would say, you know, probably the most relatable way that I could describe that or like the most relevant way I could describe that as far as me having a light bulb moment out there is to start to think about predator avoidance, which when, when you talk about a prey animal and a bunch of these researchers talked about different aspects of this and, you know, how good deer are at just not getting killed and not just by us, by everything that's out there that can kill them. When I start thinking about myself as like a, a predator that they really fear, you know, like we don't equate ourselves to a grizzly bear. We don't equate ourselves to a pack of coyotes. Like we don't think about ourselves that way, but they think of us that way. And they have, when you start un- understanding like the, the universal tools they have to avoid that level of predation, it makes you realize like the impact you can have. So we can be kind of like flippant or, you know, just like not, not really take into account the severity of our impact on them, but we got to think about it in a way like we, we don't, we don't really relate to being, you know, pursued by predators very often. And if you do have a big predator take an interest in you, it changes your perspective in a hurry, but we don't really think about them that way. Like we kind of just think we go into this world and it's like our hobby or our passion and we like it. And yeah, we don't want to spook deer, but we don't think about like residual impact from our scent, you know, a scent trail we might leave in there or something we might touch or, you know, get spotted by that forky in the tree because you're on your phone. Like, you don't really care. But all of that stuff's real important to them. And when you start talking to some of these researchers and listening to what they say, it makes you realize, like, man, if there's one thing I should be doing, I should be thinking of myself as something that's real scary to them. And I don't want them to know I'm there. And I know that's like, you know, we, we, we talk about that a lot, right? Access and you know, where are you going to, how high are you going to get into your tree? And are you really going to play the wind and all this stuff? But I don't think you can focus on that too much. Hmm. So, so I guess before we go any further, can you, can you walk me through what we cover? Like who, who are the people we're talking to over the course of the next month? And what are the focuses that we're going to dive into with each one? I think that'd be helpful to understand like what we're getting ourselves into here. Yeah, man. Uh, Bradley Cohen, is a, a researcher I had on so fascinating. And we spent almost the whole episode talking about deer vision and how they're, they're literally the anatomy of their eyeballs developed and what they're really, really good at seeing how well their vision works compared to ours, when it works well, uh, just a, just a total breakdown of how whitetails use their eyes. And I'm telling you, I went into that and I was like, you know, I was curious but they've, they've studied this in a way that they've learned so much about what deer can actually see and the, the different wavelengths and how it relates to us and how it relates to looking at the horizon versus looking straight up into a tree. Such fascinating stuff in that one. Uh, before you go any further, time out. Uh, I got to ask you, I'm hoping you guys talked about this. If not, um, either you need to call him back up and add on to the podcast or I need to call him and because I actually want to write an article about the question I'm about to pose to you. I want to write an article or get the answer to whether or not there is anything to the idea that you shouldn't make eye contact with a deer 
Like there's certain people that swear to God, like when a deer's getting spooky, don't look at him or don't look at her. Don't let her see your eyes. Like Andre DeQuisto swears to God that he will, he wears a mesh eye cover over his eyes and he swears that makes a difference. And I don't have any kind of real science or anything to back it up. But when there's a deer 10 yards away and she's getting spooky, she knows something up, something's up. I squint my eyes. Like I won't look her in the eye. Just out of like a weird little old wives tale or something. I don't know. I just feel like there's got to be something there. Um, I don't know why. I can't back it up. But I mean, they say like don't make eye contact with a grizzly bear because they can somehow sense that and get more aggressive. So why couldn't a prey animal recognize eye contact? Uh, I don't know. Do you guys talk uh, about that? I can't remember if I talked about it with him or somebody else, but we got into that. Yeah. Is, is so, there is there anything to it, or do you not want to like drop the bomb because it's so juicy? You want to save it for later? Because I'm very interested. There, there's in this. something to it. I mean, there is something to it, and it, like you said, you know, you squint, or you know, Andre says this when you when you deer hunt a lot, you recognize that moment. You know when it. Almost like when a deer is going to look at you and not spook versus when a deer is going to look at you and all of a sudden ratchet up that awareness level. Yeah. And when you see that, when you can feel that coming or you see it, you always instinctively start to kind of side eye them yeah. or cast your gaze down or just even not even look at them, you know, directly and just like it's sort of in your peripheral and just wait for them to decide. So I don't think you know, th this is a hard thing probably to prove, but I don't think there's any question that you probably don't want to like make direct eye contact with a deer you're trying to kill. You know, so, I mean, we see, we see, like you said, with, the, with big predators and, you know, when you see how dogs have evolved, like eye contact's a real thing out there in nature. And sometimes it's a, it's a real threat to be looking into the eyes of another creature. What do you th what do you think about like the idea of a and I, we're really going go off a tangent here but that's okay um, it's kind of tied to this like a sixth sense you hear sometimes about people you know kind of spitballing about do animals have some kind of sixth sense do prey species have some kind of other awareness are they picking up on something else that we aren't um, do you think there's anything to that or have you talked to anyone ever who has alluded to there being any kind of scientific basis for the idea of some other sense or sensibility that certain animal species have? So I, I asked that question to Justin Brown actually, and we kind of go down a weird rabbit hole on it. I don't think anybody studied it. I, he, he certainly hadn't, but we kind of, you know, it, academically, it's an interesting thing to, to discuss with somebody who's an expert on, you know, kind of whitetail anatomy and evolution. And I personally don't think there's anything there, but I also think there could be something there that's like totally grounded in biology that we don't really understand. So we could, you know, it's kind of like if you went back a couple thousand years ago in our history, we would assign a lot of magic to stuff we didn't understand. Right. Right. You know, like we just, we just didn't know, right. Oh, it's a, a pile of straw makes baby mice. Well, no, like mice make baby mice, but you know, <laughs> at one point we didn't know that. Right. So we just make up an, an explanation. And when you talk to a guy like Justin, you know, he's real deep into, you know, why, why are deer's legs built this way? Well, because of this and that. And they, I mean, they study it. And so they, they figure out things about a deer's anatomy that are tied directly to predator avoidance or, 
you know, smelling the, the, the micronutrient content in brows and, and eating only the best, you know, freshest stuff that they need in the moment. When you, when you see things like that, or you hear somebody who understands that, I don't think it's a stretch to think like, yeah, maybe there's not like a true sixth sense, but maybe there's something tied to one of their, one of their highly developed senses that we just don't get, you know, and, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So, I, and I, I think about this a lot cause it's, it's kind of woo woo, but it's, it's, I've heard it from several people. So I, I've, I've interviewed, uh, some people who train protection dogs. So, you know, canine dogs, essentially, uh, Belgian Malinois shepherds, whatever that are there, they're there to protect somebody, you know, whether whoever, and this, this, I interviewed this woman one time who said, and she owns a whole business dedicated to this. And she said, one of the ways they test their dogs is they'll throw like five volunteers in a bite suit. And so, you know, a bite suit is what everybody's seen. You know, some, somebody runs along, the dog goes and grabs you by the arm, pulls you down. Then the handler pulls them off. And then she said to, to really like test the dogs, she'll instruct one person out of those five to go really dark with their thoughts. Like I'm, I'm going to do horrible things to that handler. And she said, it's so like, it's so reliable, so consistent that the dog will hone in on that person hmm. who's having those horrible thoughts that she's like, they just know somehow. And I've, and it wasn't just her. I've had other people in that space who are really knowledgeable. Tell me that. And I go, well, how the hell does a Belgian Malinois know what you're thinking or, or that your thoughts have turned that dark. And so then, you know, if you believe that it's not like a huge stretch to think about a prey animal walking by some predator hiding up in a tree who has bad intentions, right? Like I'm like, when I see a buck coming, I'm like, I want to kill that son of a bitch, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's something to it. I, I, I don't disagree. Like I, 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 I think your explanation about how, you know, we just haven't figured out the science to speak about it yet sounds quite plausible. I mean, there's so many examples like what you just described or what about just now this is very anecdotal. I don't know if anybody's ever actually tried to apply like a quantitative analysis to this, but how many stories have you heard of people who were walking down a trail or were I don't know, camping or whatever, when all of a sudden they feel like the hair on the back of their necks rise up and they just feel like someone's watching them or something bad is going to happen. Like so many people you hear these stories where there's this sense of being watched or the sense of some impending danger coming. And then the next day they're walking around and they see mountain lion tracks 10 yards behind them, behind this tree or, or something like that. You know, there's so many stories where people sense something is watching them or some dangers coming. And now of course there's probably 10 million examples of that. And we hear the 10 stories where there actually was something dangerous. Maybe that's the case. Right. But I don't know. There, there seems to be the plausible idea that there could be something to it. And you know, you talked about how, you know, like an animal's nose can pick up on these different things. I mean, there's all these different chemical signals being transferred that we don't even pick up on. I mean, you know, the science is now showing that trees in a certain way are communicating between each other with different chemical aerosols that are released by their leaves based on different stimuli or different dangers. And if, if that kind of stuff can be sent out in the air and transferred in a way 
why couldn't similar chemicals be created by mammals that could then be picked up by a prey species, you know, not even realizing that they're smelling this, but in some way they're smelling intention in a way because our bodies are creating some different kind of chemical in that moment that could be picked up 10 yards away or 15 yards away by a astutely evolutionary crafted prey species to survive that kind of thing. You know, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't put it past it at all. I think it's, well, I mean, there, there's a reason that, you know, I mean, it's instinct, you know, and I, and I think that that's something that can be, you know, probably pretty dulled by our modern lives because we have it, have it pretty good. Yeah. But you know, if you took, I mean, all right, take an example. Like if you drop me into Ukraine right now and said, start fighting Russians, I'd probably be dead in like a day. Right. Cause I, I wouldn't have a clue what I was doing, but if you yeah. take somebody who's been fighting over there for those 90 days and who trained for years before that, their instincts in that environment are probably amazing. Yeah. Like just probably so in tune. So, you know, you take a, take a whitetail out there, you know, that, and, and you can see this on a sort of a, a smaller level. If you, if you hunt a wide variety of different spots, right? Like if you, if you go hunt some badass ranch down in Texas where there's like, it's real managed and you know, the, the population's really high and it, you know, those deer don't have like tons of fear. Most of the time you can see it. Oh, yeah. You're like, th- these are not the same deer I hunt on public land by my house in the twin cities. Like they're, they're different thing. They're, they're still deer, but that, that instinct, that survival instinct and those, those skills of using whatever they have available. I mean, if they don't have to use them, they're going to lose them to a certain extent. You, you would assume. Yeah. Very, very true, man. I don't know. This is something it's very, very interesting. I really need to do a deeper dive into this whole eye contact, sixth sense thing. Um, if the science isn't there yet, I bet it will be someday. Cause it's just, it's just too interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you, I mean, I think, well, hold on one second. I yeah. think, I think the hardest part about that, it, that I got from all these, these interviews is studying wild deer versus, you know, it, right. you can set up a study and, and and this is part of the reason why a lot of this research goes the way it does, because they tend to research deer that they can, or they, they tend to research topics that are, uh, easily researchable in a pen situation, you know, like taking a wild whitetail and going, okay, how do they detect predators? Not as a research scientist, like that's a heavy lift, man. Yeah. Like how do you, how the hell do you even control that? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself 
and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called The Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. I interrupted you when you were going through your rundown. So you, you mentioned the vision episode, and then you, you mentioned a guy named Justin. Who, what's he talking about? Uh, Justin's fascinating, man. He, uh, he really understands, uh, deer anatomy and, you know, whitetail evolution. And this guy has studied more, uh, random diseases and viruses and different animals than probably anyone out there. Like he, he's not just a, just a whitetail guy. I mean, he studied different viruses in turkeys and what's rough his grouse. what's his job title like that kind of stuff what's his actual career so he he has a background in in he's a veterinarian and he has a background in biomedical science wow so he's and i feel so bad he was so nice and i i interviewed him the the day that i really came down with covid and so i felt i felt bad like let me, let me tell you this. So, you know, when you are doing a podcast and you're, you're in the moment and you say something and like in your head, you're like, that was so dumb and <laughs> yes. I'm going to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. Been there. I had about nine of those moments with Justin. At one point I was like, I couldn't think of the word scientist. And so I, I said like science guy or something. And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh God, oh shit. Like, and I had, I just had several of these moments and I felt so bad because he's such an interesting guy. And had so much good information. And here I am, this low wavelength, hairless ape trying to interview him. And I'm like, ah, oh, train wreck. But oh. he, he was fascinating. So he, he carried it well enough that your inadequacies won't bring it down too much? He did. And he we, we talked off air uh, about some of the stuff that we didn't touch on. And that that's what was really cool about these guys that I interviewed. You know, they're, they're passionate hunters who got into the science space. And I mean, you can talk to these guys for an hour or two and you don't even scratch the surface of what they have to offer. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I left, I left every one of those episodes with notes about the next go round that I wanted to talk to them about. 
because they have so much interesting, relevant information to us. I love it. So what's next then? So I interviewed, well, Carl Miller, um, you know, Carl, Carl's like a legend in the, in the whitetail space. I, yeah. I really don't think anyone has published more research on deer than Carl. And he was really, really interesting. Yeah. And what did you cover with him? Uh, we covered all kinds of stuff with Carl. He, be, because of his, just because of his depth of knowledge, I really just kind of wanted to, I didn't, I didn't go into it like, okay, this is, this is a deer vision one, right? Like, I'm like, what's the most interesting thing you've studied? Like, what, what are you concerned about with the future? What should we think about as like, you know, stewards of the resource and ha have you ever met him? Do you know him? Yeah. Yep. I met him a while back. Yeah. He's such a nice guy. And so just so full of knowledge on whitetail. So we kind of went all over the place in that episode. It wasn't like a, that was like a shotgun approach episode, but just, just a fun guy to listen to. Nice. Okay. So that's three out of five, right? So what else? Yep. Uh, Michael Chamberlain as well. So, you know, people, people who listen to the meat eater podcast, I'm sure have heard him and he's, he's made a name for himself as the Turkey doc, right? Like he's, he's probably the foremost wild Turkey researcher in this country. Like, I don't think that's a crazy thing to say, but man, that guy is obsessed with hunting whitetails. And so he's, he's out there in our space, uh, you know, educating people on turkeys and he's, he's passionate about turkeys. He's a whole nother level with whitetails, just loves it. And so kind of with him too, you know, we, we talked about a lot of different stuff like fawn recruitment, uh, a lot of predation stuff. He does a lot of studies down South and, you know, deals with, you know, how many fawns do bears eat in Louisiana, that kind of stuff. And just, just interesting. He's such a good dude. Awesome. I like it. And the last one. So one thing that happened in these podcasts that I didn't intend to, or I, I guess I, sh I shouldn't say that. That's a, that's bad phrasing. I didn't see coming was every single one of these people I interviewed is really, really interested in the future of whitetails. Like there's no question in my mind and CWD came up over and over and over again. Like you want to talk about like the top concern with these science, these, these scientists, it's like, no question. These science guys. It, yeah. Science guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I had, uh, Jason Sumner's on from the Missouri department of conservation. He's the, he's the head of the division of science or their branch of science or something that the MDC down there, they have a really, uh, really interesting setup for their, their game department. And they have a, have a heavy emphasis on science and research. And so it's, it, he was, and he runs the whole thing. And so he, you know, he and I really basically did an episode on chronic wasting disease and it's a, it's a sort of a downer, I guess you could say, but also not totally hopeless. Like when you, when you have somebody like that at the helm, who's concerned about it and loves deer and has the, the resources to really study this and, and figure out what might work and what doesn't, it gives you a little bit of hope. CWD man, it's such a doozy of a topic too, because it's, because it's, it's got several things going for it or going against it. I mean, it's, it's slow moving. 
And so it's not something that instantly changes things and that people can point a finger and say, oh, yeah, it absolutely made this horrible thing happen. So, yes, we absolutely have to do something about it. But but no, instead, slow moving. It's hard to really wrap your head around. It uh, has become politicized in a certain way within the deer hunting community. And so it's become like this this issue that's like ripping, tearing the community apart between like believers and deniers. I mean, it's like, it's like COVID or climate change or something, but the deer hunting version of it, that's like becoming this weirdly polarized thing. Um, and so some people either get really charged up about it or some people just put their heads in the sand and just want to stay out of it. Cause they don't want to get into this polarizing, depressing issue. Uh, why is it, worth listening to Tony if I'm worried about that if I'm that person I'm thinking gosh this is just this is a downer this is going to stress me out and it's going to piss off my friend if I tell him that you should pay attention to CWD or whatever uh what do you tell that person uh I would tell them a lot you know I'm I've been I've I've been involved in this issue for a long time I've written about it a ton and done a lot of research on it and I've been, I kind of hit this sort of agnostic state with it where I was like, I I'm, you know, it was part of it was fatigue. Right. But part of it was like, I just don't know. Like, I don't know what's bullshit and what's not, you know, like, cause you, because like you said, it is like a highly politicized issue. And when you talk to somebody who loves deer, who actually handles the science behind it, it's sort of. Uh, it, it, it sort of just clears out some of the white noise. And what you realize is, you know, we have some pretty prominent voices out there who have a vested interest in, you know, straight up lying about CWD or, you know, really downplaying some of the stuff we know, you know, and, the, and those voices have done a lot of damage. And so when you, when you talk to people, you know, like a really common one, a really common thing to say around CWD is that it's been here forever. And it's just a part of the natural world of our deer or elk. The problem with something like that is it's, that's not backed up by anything. Like no, nobody who knows what they're doing with the science says that's true. They say it could be true. Like we, it might, that's possible, right? There's no data to support that. And so we have so many different aspects of this that, that fall into sort of that category so yeah, you can fill in the blanks and decide that this is, it, it goes this way or it doesn't do this. We don't know a lot of that stuff. And so there's some serious mental horsepower out there being dedicated to like figuring out those things, whether they're true or not. And yeah, can we contain it? Like, can we keep prevalence levels low? What does it really mean for the future of whitetails? And you can't, you, you can take an issue like this and it's, it's, it just is what it is. It's there's, there's research around it. There's science behind it. They're trying to figure out what this means, but it's also like inextricably linked to, uh, the social science or the social aspect of it. And so we get shit gets real muddy when we do that because we have a vested interest in seeing lots of deer out there. Cause we don't want this to change. So just us as an audience consuming this, we're kind of like, it's, it's sort of easier to just stick your head in the sand and be like, I don't, I don't really want to know, or I, I don't really want to think about this because I want deer to be there and I don't want the bad news. And you know, that, that's sort of an easy take, but it, like, maybe it's not the best one. Like if we care about the future of whitetails, we should want this research to be conducted. Like we should, we should want to know what this means and, and get the best info we can. 
Yeah, man. It's the perfect poison as far as a hard issue to address because of those exact things. It's it's a our human psychology in so many ways is perfectly fine tuned to not want to deal with something like this. You know? Yeah. It's a it's yeah. a doozy. Hmm. Well, and and I would say on that too, one of the things this will be this is tough to prove, but I believe this like in my heart. When you when you talk to these people who I who I've talked to for these interviews, you don't get this propaganda vibe. You don't get this like undercurrent of you know like ulterior motives or something like that. It's like the you get the you get the feeling that they're like I want this to continue. Like I want there to be a be dear around for my kids and my grandkids. You don't you, you just don't it, it like it makes you realize like there are people in this that who are genuinely working toward a good cause. And you might not like the agency they work for. You might want to assign like nefarious intent to them. But when you spend time with these people, it's like, man, I don't know. They, it, it feels pretty genuine to me that, that they're really trying to learn something that can help all of us and the deer out. Yeah. So when you look at these five conversations you've had, is there anything that kind of threw you for a loop? Were you surprised by anything or did you have a previous assumption that was upturned or anything? Was there any kind of like, whoa moment for you throughout this process? There, there definitely was. Uh, and it actually happened in the, the CWD conversation with Jason Sumners. Uh, I don't, I don't really want to give it away, but I had, I had sort of made up my mind and I didn't realize I had kind of made my mind up this way until I said something about the future of whitetails and what I thought. And he corrected me and said, you know, what we're finding is that, that that's just not true. And I, I, I don't want to give it away, but it was one of those moments where I was like, God, I, I think I had this totally wrong, like totally wrong. And I, and I didn't even realize how, you know, like how, how kind of ensconced in that way of thinking I was. Interesting. Here's another thing I was curious about, you know, in, in a lot of like my off, I don't know how to describe it. I do a ton of just reading and research about a whole bunch of different things related to wildlife and the environment and stuff. And, and we're starting to see, you know, increasing evidence of, you know, just the, the widespread long-term influence and impact we're having on wildlife, right? So much so that now we're actually able to kind of identify ways that animals have, you know, are beginning to evolve and adapt and change to specific, you know, influences of humans. And certain species are really good at adapting and and literally changing. There's something called phenotypic plasticity, which is a fun new $10 word that I've liked <laughs> that points to the, the the ability for these animals to to change both behaviorally and even possibly in their genes to adapt to how the world is changing because of us. Um, and so that's been an interesting thing I've been reading about. And I got to thinking, you know, is that happening with whitetails? Are we changing whitetails? I mean, whitetails are incredibly adaptable. They're one of these species that are actually winners in the jackpot. Or I got, what am I trying to say? They're, they're winners as far as an animal species that can live alongside of humans compared to many others, right? Um, and I'm curious if in any of your conversations you heard about this at all. Are there any examples of that kind of thing that these scientists are picking up on? Is the biology of whitetails or, or the behavior or anything changing alongside of how we humans have changed things? Did 
anything along those lines come up? So yeah, that I, I'm pretty sure it was with Justin, uh, Justin Brown, where we, we talked about that, uh, not only with whitetails and how adaptable they are. And he, he, he brought it up. I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was, you know, their adaptability is partially due to their evolution as edge critters and being, being sort of wired toward being around, you know, edges of habitat and stuff. But, you know, we kind of went down this rabbit hole of them being super adaptable to us and, you know, you know, pretty rapid changing environments, you know, versus maybe mule deer. And one of the things he talked about, uh, was, was coyotes, which are, you know, a similar example, uh, like, like the whitetail where they just, whatever you throw at them, they seem to make it work. And it's a fascinating aspect to whitetails to, you know, to see it, it, it sort of just makes you realize how much of a gift they are to be able to play so well with us, no matter how much we develop and no matter how much we change the land. And it's, it's, it's pretty wild. And it, and it is, it is like tied to, you know, their evolutionary path that, that adaptability is, but it's not like you can just say it's, you know, this gene, you know, like it's not like you can, it's, it's not an easy thing to put your finger on, but they're like hyper aware of it. Hmm. Yeah. They're survivors. That's for sure. Some of the very best. What Tony of all this is, did anything stand out to you as, as something that you either identified as something you want to dive further into or that you wish you could have covered, but somehow it didn't come up. Like what's next for you or for us? If there's an area where you wanted more, what's the area that is pulling you to explore next after this foundation that you've developed and that we're all going to learn about here soon? Oh man, there's so much stuff. I mean, you, you really, you could probably do a hundred podcasts with each one of these guests and probably find dozens and dozens more people just like them and, and talk about this stuff. When you get into conversations with these guys, especially after the show's over, you know how it is. They'll just mention something like, oh yeah, we're working on this study or we're thinking about this or thinking about doing that, or this was like an anomaly and we're just curious about it. And you realize how much there is to learn. Like it, it, if, if I took away anything from this, it was like, man, I got a lot of stuff left to learn about whitetails. And so do these people who know a lot more about whitetails than I do. And I just, I just think that's cool. Like, I just, I just think it's cool that there's, you know, th- this animal we're obsessed with and we think about all the time and we, we, we try to figure out and we try to just learn about, and we could, we could never know enough about them. Like we could never get there. Like we could never get to the end. And I just think that's cool. I, I, they're just such amazing animals. Very, 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 very true which is why we've done 500 and so many episodes of this one and <laughs> however many thousands of episodes of other podcasts and videos, right? We just can't get enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that that's the thing we don't talk about, I think. Uh, I mean, we kind of do, but we kind of, we kind of skirt around it is, you know, how, how hard this stuff really is. Like how, how hard it is to actually get good at, you know, being a whitetail hunter. And even if you do get to like some level like that, how often you get your ass handed to you and realize like, man, as good as you can be, you could be so much better. It's just, it, I think that's just amazing. So here's a question. 
whether it be like in your research for this or in conversations with these people or maybe anywhere else, did you ever come on any kind of book recommendations or resource recommendations or, I don't know, for people that want to go deeper into this kind of stuff, for people who realize now that there's um, something to better understanding deer, not just, you know, what trails they take, but actually how they function and flourish. Do you have any recommendations for where people can go to get more of this kind of stuff after they listen to the series or books or anything like that? Uh, Book-wise, I don't know. I actually am kind of kicking around writing one myself because I think, I think there's like a, there's probably a gap in the white toe world there. And Mm -hmm. I think it would be pretty cool to, to dig into this stuff because, you know, you know how this is. If you, if you're going to interview somebody who's a scientist or wildlife researcher, you're going to read some of their papers, right? And, and, you know, research papers are pretty dry. They're, yeah, I know a guy like you loves them because you're wired kind of weird, but like most people probably don't. Yeah. And, but when you, when you start reading them, even if you just read the abstract from each of these papers, you're like, man, this is pretty cool. Like the, in a way they just get to ask a question that they're curious about. And if they can get the funding to do it, or they can get a grant or they can get some resources, they can go out and design experiments to figure it out. Like, that's cool. Like we can't, we can't do that. Like I can't, you know, Andy may can't go, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to figure this thing out with these wild deer in, in that kind of way. Yeah. Like he can do it in his own way and he's going to, he's going to learn something, but they have the opportunity. These researchers have this opportunity to do something that's so cool. And I just, I think, I don't know. So it, it, there, that's a really dumb answer to your question. If you really wanted to, <laughs> you know, read about this stuff, it's mostly in the research papers. And you know, a lot of a lot of companies, you know, Meat Eater does a good job at this. Is if there's something really cool that comes out, there'll be an article about it that sort of bridges the gap between the you know academia and the in the that that style of writing versus you know what we typically read in the hunting space, which is a different. It's a different delivery system, you know? Yeah, yeah, man. Well, I think this is a good uh, call to action for you. You should write that book. <laughs> uh, I might. I might. I <laughs> I thought about it a lot as I was uh, sort of sort of pulling everything together for this series. I think there's I think there's sort of a gap in the in the the content space for that. Well, here's the thing: is is you just pointed out the big. Um, like problem with most of this writing about this stuff is that it's it's hard to digest. It's usually scientific papers. It's usually pretty boring. But if you could somehow convey the science in like a fascinating, fun way, like make it part of a journey, tell hunting stories, take them on a trip while they learn about this kind of stuff, like all of a sudden it's a lot more palatable. And people will actually, you know, be able to hold on to that information in their minds when it's tied into a larger interesting narrative. There's a, there's a hell of a book right there. I'm not, I'm not going to call dibs on it. So you, you run with it, buddy. <laughs> you know, I might, I might, um, I mean, it, it, I think you could do it in a style. Um, you had, you had the guy who wrote the comfort crisis on, right? What was his name? Yeah. Michael, Michael, Michael Easter. Michael Easter. Yep. Uh, that, you know, that book uh, is a really good example yeah, exactly. of what we're talking about. Exactly. You know I mean? If you, his journey to to get in shape and learn about the outdoors and, you know, tie himself to nature. He did a, a really good job of, uh, you know, blending that experience of that caribou hunt with Donnie Vincent with just 
real research into what makes us happy and healthy. And I think, I think that style is, is, you know, it's pretty cool. And I, I think you could do that with this, this topic probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, my favorite kind of book. And, and the kind of book I guess I want to write too, is like where you combine that you learn something while also going on an interesting journey or doing something interesting along the way makes it just so much more easy to consume it. You want to consume it yeah. then. Um, well, until you write that book, I do have a couple of recommendations that came to mind um, for people that want to read more on this. There's a very interesting book uh, called Whitetail Tracks. This is by Valerius Geist, who was like the OG of science in the world of ungulates. Uh, he recently passed away. But uh, Whitetail Tracks dives into like the evolutionary history of whitetails and kind of their impact on the North American ecosystem and where we are today. Super interesting stuff. Covers some of like the biology and how they are, how they are, and why they are, how they are. That's a pretty interesting one. Um, there's one called Deerland by Al Cambrone. This came out like right when I started Wired to Hunt. Um, and so this one kind of covers the science of whitetails, but then also like the impact that whitetails have on um, – the natural world, I guess, and kind of also cultural impact as well in America. So that one's kind of interesting. It, it touches on some of this stuff. Um, and then one called Heart and Blood by Richard Nelson. And this one covers some of the same stuff. A couple chapters are on the science and biology of deer. And then it goes into more of like the cultural integration of deer into our world, into, you know, how we interact with them and, so it's a little above and beyond, but, but again, another pretty interesting one that covers on some of this stuff. Those are the first three that came to mind without looking at my bookshelf. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good stuff, man. Those are it's, good recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. Check those out. I guess, is there anything else, Tony? Like, is there anything else that we need to know or that we should chat about before we just dive in over this next month and get right into it? Huh? I think, I think it's just worth thinking about this stuff with an open mind, kind of to circle back right to, you know, what you started, started this podcast talking about, like, you know, maybe people aren't that interested in it, or maybe they don't, they're not making the connection that these kind of interviews will help them become a better hunter. But I just firmly believe they do. Like, I really believe that if you take in this information, it, it par partially because so much of it is like, you know ubiquitous across the space, right? Like if you, if you learn how a deer sees, like how their vision really works, it doesn't matter if you hunt in, you know, Southern Alabama or up in Canada, you know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The same thing. If you, if you really understand, you know, why a whitetail might feed on this type of browse at this time of year or how they use their nose to find food, it really doesn't matter where you hunt. Like that's, that's applicable to you as long as you're just hunting deer. And so I think, I think in some ways the science is pretty neat in that aspect. Cause we, we tend to, you know, if you interview somebody who's just a, a stone cold killer from somewhere, you know, they might be able to go to a bunch of different places and do it, but they're rooted somewhere. And so there's always somebody who's like, yeah, but here in Florida, he couldn't do that, yeah. you know, or where I hunt, that's just not going to fly we always have that sort of stigma attached to us as hunters. Like no matter how accomplished you get, but some of this stuff just, it doesn't matter. It's universal. Yeah. Hmm. That's very true. I got one last question for you. 
usually, historically, when you have filled in for me on the main Wired Hunt podcast, <laughs> you usually start every episode talking some kind of shit about me and making up weird destinations <laughs> that I might be at. So the big question I have is, does that continue even when I allow you to spearhead a whole series like this? Do, do you still <laughs> bite the hand that feeds you? <laughs> First off, first <laughs> off, I'm a meat eater full timer, so we're equals now, Mark. So nobody's feeding anybody. Uh, se- secondly, I'm not making up anything. I just tell the people what you tell me, you and you and Spencer's little adventures, and I just let them know why they have me for the week. And oh, so, you know, it's safe to say if I'm filling in for your podcast, it's because you're off doing something that might intrigue people, and I just let them know. Just you know, casual. Yeah. Just so casual. thanks for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, I got one other question for you just in case for people that are listening to this, but if they have not been tuning into recent episodes of foundations, can you give me a little update on what's been going on recently with your foundation series and what we can look forward to? Is there anything that folks should know about? Yeah. Uh, so we are, we are at the end of year one and year one's goal was just kind of as, as much as possible, take a chronological look at what we should be doing as hunters to try to be successful. So, you know, should you be scouting this way at this time of the year, or should you be, you know, hunting staging areas at this time of year, or how should you be looking at winter scouting and very kind of, uh, you know, useful that way, like in the moment useful, I guess I would say, but we've wrapped that up. And what that project is so weird for me is because I I view it like with a little bit of an existential dread because I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I have anything left to say sometimes, you know, like it's the same thing when you're, when you've written hundreds and hundreds of articles, you're like, how do I write about the rut again? It's tough. And you know, that those foundation scripts are pretty heavy lift, especially after you get to a year. But I realized how much stuff I had not written about, or, you know, how, how many things I hadn't recorded. And so year two is going to be different. It won't be, it, it, it'll be tied loosely into some, you know, chronological stuff, you know, like I'm, I'm not going to talk about winter scouting in August, you know, but it's going to be more one-off concepts of like, you know, everything from, you know, self-reflection to blood trailing to, you know, target practice to why you should think about, you know, maybe this piece of gear or what, what you should think about with whitetail fawns when they're doing this or something like just sort of a different approach than the last year. And they've been, they've been pretty fun to write, man. Like it's, it sort of feels a little bit freeing to not be locked into the, the chronological, you know, got to go out and do this this week type of thing. And so I, I hope people like them because I'm enjoying putting them together and they're, they're, they're going to have a different feel to some extent. Man, I love the format. I mean, I sell, so I'm biased, right? Since I'm a little bit of a part of it, but I, I just love it's, it's bite size and it's concentrated. It's like, instead of drinking, Oh, I don't know, like a gallon of Gatorade or something. I'm just taking like that energy shot and it's nothing but the good stuff. It's not an hour and a half of Mark rambling kind of on. And sometimes we're talking about interesting stuff. And sometimes I'm talking about babysitting 
or taking care of kids while my wife's gone. No, it's just like 20 minutes or 15 minutes of this one really interesting set of insights from you. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm too busy to listen to podcasts most of the time, or if I, when I have free time, I'm not usually listening to them, but those are ones that I'm actually, you know, able and interested in to, to digest because of that format. So, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is keep up the good work, buddy. Thanks, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for this second year there. The, this, the stuff that I've already written and put together for it is, uh, honestly, yeah, the people just have to listen, but it's, it's stuff that I've never, it's topics I've never really approached in the whitetail space. And I, I'm having fun with that. I mean, I, I think, I think, and I, maybe this is, this is probably so weird, but I kind of think that's what's really neat about podcasts over some of the other mediums we work in is because, yeah, okay. You, you know, you've got 500 and some episodes in the can dedicated to whitetails, but there's so much that comes into a podcast and a good conversation. That's really not like, here's how the audience is going to kill their deer. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's so much more to it. And I, I, and these foundations episodes, I realize how much like of my personal life is tied to my thinking of whitetails, even though like, if you put it on paper, you're like, Oh, I'm going to talk about this topic this week. People would be like, that has nothing to do with whitetails. But if you have the time to explain yourself and get into it, yeah, it actually does. And I, and I think it just gives us a chance to talk about something that you're probably just not really going to find anywhere else in all the whitetail content space. And I, I love that opportunity. Yeah. You make a good point. I mean, some of these topics, they would never get approved as an article that some company would pay for, right? They're never going to, yep. you're not going to be able to get production and make a video about something like this, but we really have zero oversight on what we can talk about in the podcast. Like we can do whatever we want here. And that is a freeing thing. Like that is a pretty cool freedom to have, to explore these things uh, that, that should be explored, but maybe aren't clicky enough to, to get love elsewhere. So uh, that's a good yeah. point. It's interesting. It, it really makes you, aware of how we approached whitetail content for a long time. You know, like when I, when I started out, you know, it was, it was primarily magazines, right. And it was like, you were, you, you wanted the assignments, you were going to take them, but you're, you know, you're like writing, you know, how to kill a whitetail over water. And it's like, you could go back, you know, when I was at like bow hunter magazine or, or Peterson's bow hunting, for example, you know, I could look in the archives and see articles about that from, you know, 1998 and 1981. And you're like, I feel like it feels weird. Right. You know what I mean? There's a new take on it and you can say your own thing in your own voice and, and it's different, but you're still, you still feel like you're just plugged into that yeah. formula. Yeah. And this is not that. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Well, I think uh, I think I'm just ready to get into it. I, I almost wish that we could have the first episode today, so we could listen to this and then dive right into it. But I'm going to make everybody wait a week until we get to the first one. What is the first one, Tony? Who are we going to hear from first? I think it's going to be Bradley Cohen first on Deer Vision. Sweet. All right, man. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this to to dive so deep into these topics and to uh, put together a really good looking schedule for the next five weeks. Uh, I'm personally excited and I hope other people are too. Yeah, man. I hope they enjoy it. I, I, I think they will.
All right. And that's it for us today. Thanks for tuning in as we start to kind of percolate and get excited about this topic of whitetail science in biology. I hope you guys are interested in what's ahead of us. I hope you will tune in over the coming weeks as we get to explore these topics that Tony teed up for us. I'm excited. It's going to be a great thing for us to dive into here as we get the early summertime period set up and uh, appreciate you being here with us. So until next time, thank you for listening. Don't believe a thing Tony tells you about what I'm doing when he pitches you on it at the beginning of his episodes. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.